You're listening to Music Tectonics. Welcome back to Music Tectonics, where we go beneath the surface of music and technology. I am your host, Dimitri Vitsa. I'm the CEO and founder of Rock, Paper, Scissors. We're a PR firm that focuses on tech, music, and music tech. And I have my trusty co-host, Tristra New Year Yeager. Hey there. How's it going, Tristra? I'm doing pretty great today. I'm excited, Tristra. Yeah, me too. Because we've got the music tech seismologist, uh, and researcher and public speaker and kind of a leader in the music tech space, um, Mark Mulligan from Media with us. How are you doing, Mark? I'm doing great. Thanks. It's uh, great to be here as well. Yes. Uh, I've been following you for as long as I've known about you. Um, and uh, since I started my own music tech startup, uh, started seeing you at places like Meetum and other conferences and, and listening to you speak and, and read the reports that you put out. And I think you've got your finger on the pulse of things before they happen, practically. <laughs> and that's, that's why I called you the music tech seismologist. Um, and really excited. You're going to be come, coming out to Music Tectonics, our conference in LA this October to be our keynote. And um, so great to have you on the podcast. I thought I would kick off by just asking you, what are the defining characteristics uh, for music tech this year, 2019? Well, I think this year has been one that in some ways looks like there's less happening than in previous years. And in actual fact, there's more happening. So what I mean by that is if you look at the last couple of years, it was all about how big streaming was getting. And, you know, it's really big acceleration. And the big guys really established themselves. We saw sort of 100 million subscriber marks passed, etc. And, you know, so it's a really, really big year. And then this year, in comparison, it looks a bit like, well, it's more the same and we're beginning to see a bit of a slowdown and the market's becoming a bit ossified. And, you know, and it sort of on the surface can look like we're actually seeing a bit less. But in actual fact, I think there's some structural changes which are probably going to be more impactful on the music business than streaming was. Uh, the most important strand of all, I think, which ties together a lot of different ones, is the age of the empowered artist. You know, we've had for the last couple of years the the DIY artists, the the artist direct sector, and independent uh, artists on label services. That those sectors have been growing at an astounding rate, far far quicker. In fact, three times faster than the rest of the music business. And we've seen this whole ecosystem of technology and apps and services and tools arising to serve those artists. And the reason we can see that this is really impactful and the reason we can see that it's going to make really big change is because the traditional music industry is now paying attention. The traditional music industry is either trying to buy the companies, trying to set up their own competitors, having to completely change the deal structures. And really, when we think about all that streaming did, really, when you boil it down to its basics, is streaming just took the old models of retail and radio put them together in one nice, neat package and made it work a lot better and geared it for, for the current era. But the shift from artists being tied to big, long label of publishing deals where they give up all of their rights and they have very little control over their own finances or their own creativity, and he switched that to one where they're in control, that is a complete rewriting of the music business, and we're only just getting started there. 
Wow, it's, it's so cool. This, to me, I feel a little bit like I'm a I'm a I've been a student to try to pick up on these kind of shifts happening in the industry, and uh, we've actually identified several seismic shifts that we've been weaving into some blog posts and podcasts, and we'll be weaving into the Music Tectonics Conference. And one that I did not expect to talk to you about today, I call self-driving artists change everything. You called it self-empowered artists, which I really like. Um, I think the reason I chose self-driving was because people have used DIY so much, do it yourself. And a lot of it's not about actually having to do it yourself so much as to have the control of what's going on, making the decision. So I really like your, your term, self-empowered artist. And the reason I also identified that one as one of these seismic shifts is because it does feel like what looked like this non-entity as far as the traditional music industry was concerned, didn't just gather power, but gathered tools and also kind of a cultural momentum that shifted the entire conversation with all creators when they're doing any kind of deal. So it's not just, oh, there's all these self-releasing artists now, but like you said, it's changing the way that record labels and publishers are doing deals with artists. Absolutely. And I, really, there's probably two ways to look at this. So one is you have a a body of artists which um, will always be below the radar. They'll always be either mid-tier, low-tier. Some of them are doing it as, as enthusiasts. Some of them are making a part-time living out of it. But they're pretty much always going to be at that level. And so there, there's a huge marketplace there, which now makes those artists be able to find global-scale audiences in the way that, that they, they didn't used to be able to. And yes, the internet has technically enabled that for a couple of decades now, but it's really been only this last few years where we've seen so many tools being delivered directly to the artists that and enabling them to get straight onto streaming platforms, that's really turned that potential into actuality. But the other part of it, the other way to look at the, is the independent artist sphere is thinking of about think of it as being the top of the marketing funnel. You know, this is where everything starts to bubble up. In the old days, in the old world, and by the way, when I say the old world, the old world still exists. We're in a transition. In any transition, the old world and the new world coexist. And that can be really confusing because it means the old world apologists will always find the statistics or the evidence to say things are still just like they were. The way we do things still work. While on the other side, you'll have lots and lots of evidence showing just how dramatically things are changing. And for a period of time, both realities are true, but the momentum is clearly with the change. So in the old world, which still exists, but in the old world, you'd send in your demo to a to a label. And if you're good enough, they'd sign you. In the meantime, you build up maybe a bit of a live following. And then you'd either be a hit or a miss. And if you signed for one of the big record labels, you'd have a one in 10 chance of making it. And it's all or nothing. And if you fail at the end of that, you get dumped. And many people see that as the end of their music career. In the new world, either you get to continue to build a career at a lower level, and you might even still be able to pull a couple of thousand people to your, to your gigs, but you know you never break through to that next level. Or you start bubbling up and you start seeing your numbers start spiking on SoundCloud or Bandcamp or even on, on Spotify, etc. And those spikes, that's where people really start getting interested. There's all these tools and there's different next generation label companies and the likes of AWOL, etc., who will all be able to jump in on those indicators <clears throat> and then go, you know, and, and, and sign the artists and stream them up. You know, instead of just saying, right, it's a big deal and it's all or nothing, it can be okay, well, let's 
try something for a single. Let's see how it goes. And, you know, and if it blows up a bit, we'll, we'll put some more behind you. We'll move you further up the chain. And if it goes away, we'll take you back down again. It's very fluid. It's very agile. And I think that's probably, if we look at where these things will go over the next few years, it will be the idea of artist careers being fluid. They will bubble up, they will bubble down, they might go sort of off the board for a while, then come back. And it's really the, the labels who have the data, the technology, the skill sets, and the people who are able to work in that very fluid, very agile, very fast-moving world. They're the ones who are going to be able to fish upstream in this marketing funnel and find those artists early and make the, the right bets on which ones are going to get right to the top. I think this is really interesting, Mark. Um, we've been talking a lot uh, at RPS about the importance of niches now instead of scales. So there was a lot of thinking, say, 10, even five years ago about music as this kind of widget, you know, the sort of anonymous content that like some sort of bowl of meaningless oatmeal could be sort of stuffed into these various holes and the long tail and all of that sort of, there was no differentiation. Um, and what you're saying with this fluidity is that there can be um, you know, it, there was always the potential for this in, in music, right? There was always session players and scenes and all of these small labels, but they weren't that we didn't have the visibility. You didn't have the sort of global um, scope um, that we have now. Like we can actually see things, th these things happening um, in almost real time. So in some ways, uh, the, I love that this, I love the idea of fluidity. And I feel like that and, and this concept of niche and all these sort of little pockets where things are bubbling up and, and filling up and then getting promoted by people who are um, intelligent enough to see the potential and by fans who are intelligent enough to connect with that. And that's a really interesting concept. It's like it's making um, something that was very much latent, I think, in the physical distribution era into something that's very much very present and emergent. I don't know. I'm sorry to get a little little academic-y on you, but <laughs> it sounds a little sorry. I sound like a cultural studies professor, but it's pretty no, interesting. I'm with you 100%. So <clears throat> first of all, yes, absolutely, niche is the new mainstream. Um, but secondly, the, the it's not just, I would say, about what was the, what was possible not possible in the physical distribution era and what is possible in the digital era because we've essentially had the best part of two decades of digital before lots of this potential started to turn into something really tangible um so it's not just the fact that platforms are available or that there are audiences out there it, we had to wait till audiences had the right services to use we had to wait until artists had the right tools to use. And we had to wait until uh, we had the right tools to be able to process the data, to be able to make the right calls, to be able to allow people to be creative quickly. Um, it's essentially we've got to this point where we're having an acceleration of innovation in, in music tech. But the, the, the ironic thing is, is the... If you, so I've been a music industry tech analyst for, for far too many years now, but really started just before um, before the original Napster uh, kicked off. So I've seen this market, you know, sort of rise and fall over the years. The consumer app side, the consumer tech side of of um, digital music now is actually incredibly staid and boring. You know, there is very little innovation <laughs> because it's the barriers to entry are just too high. 
you know, if you want to launch a global streaming music service, you're probably going to need to spend at the very least tens of millions of dollars building a product and then started to build a brand. That's just to get to the starting line. And when you get there, you realize the market is all sewn up between a whole bunch of players. And even if you want to try to do something different, you're probably not going to get the rights from the rights holders to do it. So there's really very little innovation happening there. And yet we've got all of this growth happening across the recorded business, across publishing and still growth in live. And so there's a lot of external money coming into the space. So the places it's going, the way the, the investment is going is innovation in the B2B side of things. It's all of the tools and the apps and the services which enable the market to uh, to, to to respond to all the audience changes that enable the platforms for you know for artists and labels and publishers to do different things and that's really where the really exciting stuff is you're seeing music publishers acquiring uh, you know acquiring DIY artist platforms you know you're seeing all of these sort of things which is people are moving across value chains because there's the technology that enables them to do it and there's the investment that enables that technology to build but it's B2B, it's a B2B music tech revolution rather than a consumer music tech revolution. That's That makes a ton of sense. And um, it's interesting to think about where that has been lagging. Where do you see some holes or some slow movement where you'd like, where you know, to, to, for the music industry to reach its potential? Um, where would you love to see a little bit more innovation? Um, right at the middle. If we look at streaming music um, as it stands in the West, and it, it is a big distinction, the West between a number of Asian markets, but in the West, streaming music is um, incredibly commodified because of the terms and the constraints that rights holders put uh, when they're licensing the services. And there's really good reasons for them doing that. You know, they need to protect their content. They need to make sure that their content is valued appropriately in the marketplace, etc. There's really good reasons. But nonetheless, the, the unintended consequence of that licensing strategy is that we have a market which um, has a, a, a very small but quite long tail and a really fat head of a small number of tech giants who fundamentally are selling the same service. They've got the same music, they've got the same device support, they've got the same pricing, they've got the same tiers. You know, and it, this is the equivalent of you um, wanted to buy a car and everything is a Lexus. You know, and, and you, all you get to do is you can choose what color paint you have on it. And if you're really lucky, you might be able to decide, you know, sort of what seats you put in it. Fundamentally, consumers have negligible choice when it comes to uh, streaming music apps. And because, you know, streaming music services are undifferentiated and that's where the spending is, we've essentially created a digital equivalent of the CD era. You know, you rewind 20 years ago, 1999, just before the music industry started to go into decline, what we had was one format, one format that was doing really well, that were still growing, but with no real sign of a successor format on the horizon. And everybody thought, great, this is the way the market's going to carry on. Now, I'm not saying that now we're suddenly going to have a Napster moment and everything's going to collapse, but we do lack a successor format. And I would say what streaming music does in the West is it monetizes consumption. You know, it does the functional stuff really well. 
it's you know one of the things that was spoken about a lot of years ago was that music would become like water and it has but in a very unexciting way it's become like water <laughs> so it's become like water in in the house do you know do you ever go out to, you know to a party and chat about how great the water is that comes out of your tap you know <laughs> not usually exactly. states, no. but <laughs> you would complain if somebody turned off your water so it, you know it's it's mm-hmm. a service which you need to have but it's not something that you get all excited about and music is fundamentally something that we should all get really excited about so there's a real risk that what streaming is doing and there was a, a music journalist who wrote a piece that nailed a quote in this which was he said for for him streaming has left a hole in his music soul you know and i think there's a there's that real risk that that is what you know what's happened with music it's taken the passion it's taken the fandom it's taken the excitement out of music and that's a really big difference if you look at markets like china um you know if you look at say what tencent has got with its portfolio of apps you look at tiktok coming out of there um you know you you look a bit maybe at line in japan we see what these apps are doing is they are monetizing fandom you know and that for me is rather than what should we have changing in apps or you know what features and functionality should change or i think it's 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 a bigger but simpler uh, question which is what do we want our music services to do which they aren't doing now what is the need in the market and i would say monetizing fandom could be the next real big growth story for uh, for digital music the last thing i'll say on this though which is the you know the elephant in the room is as we've seen with the rise of tiktok at the moment looking a lot like when youtube was getting going it's a rights minefield and the record labels and publishers just can't work out how to build a rights framework around it and tiktok all the meanwhile they say yeah but we're giving you great exposure so we've got to work out how to build licenses around it when we do that could be it well, Mark, it's been really interesting just hearing this this portion of the conversation. So many of the seismic shifts that we talk about have already come up. Um, there's no single path to success. Um, you got into earlier when you're talking about the self-empowered artist and how they might be a funnel, but also things can change and there's this fluidity. Um, and then the flip side of that one is on the consumer or the, the fan side, there is no single path to listening as well, which we haven't gotten super in depth on it today yet. But the one that your last comment about monetizing fandom reminds me of is the one that I call creation and engagement intermingle. That in the past, it felt like an artist was a performer performing to an audience, which is still the case in some listening paths. But in lots of situations, it's no longer clear who the artist and who the audience is, or the audience becomes the artist, or the audience becomes a collaborator with the artist. And I think that's where this this idea of monetizing fandom may may come into play. Yeah, and, and to, to steal somebody else's quote, um, a good number of years ago now, DJ Spooky said, we're living in the age of mass media customization, you know, and that really is it. We all mm-hmm. lean forward and do things. We all are creators in our different ways, whether we're adding a filter onto an Instagram post or whether we're doing our own mashup of something or all of these things mean that 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 distinction between where the audience stops and the artist starts, that's becoming blurred. Now, of course, we're always going to have the majority of people are going to be audience and the minority of people are going to be the artists. But that interaction, the intermingling, that space in the middle, I would say is, for, for me, the, the 
the real import of that is not that people are creating it's that the, f- the fact that people feel like they are they are becoming participants they're actively part of their artist journey you know they deepens that connection with them that first step of that was social media and people felt you know when they're having conversations with the artists they felt that deeper level of connection in these days of facebook posts facebook pages feeling very much like somewhere where it's the artist manager or the label just trying to sell you something um tumblr has had its day twitter is full of trolls and instagram in the post fire world is really not really viewed as a real view of the world there is no place for fans and uh, artists to have that real close uh, conversation relationship anymore so places like tiktok are if you like oases of <clears throat> of fan engagement and, uh, and we need more of them yeah, that's that's brings up something that has been puzzling me for years, which is why is it so hard to um, launch any kind of social functionality um, around music? And so many people have tried and are trying and have tried to slice and dice it in various ways. But it seems like such a natural impulse, um, both from our sort of celebrity worshiping pop culture, but also from that very human um, desire to reach out to somebody who has moved you emotionally through something that they've created. So it, it's just puzzling that it's been such a tough nut to crack. It feels like so many swings have been made at that nut and yet <laughs> there it remains sitting there stubbornly. Um, I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that, why it's been so tough. I mean, Apple tried, Spotify tried, everybody sort of tried and yet, um, I don't see it except for TikTok and some, uh, you know, uses that are very specific. It's it's really hard to to figure yeah. out why it's not um, working. So it's a great question. And I think there's a, at a very high level, there's a simple answer. And that is the Western music business is starting from the wrong place. I think China gives us a really good indicator of how things can be in in many respects, the Chinese music industry industry has been created from scratch. You know, the, with the hugely ironically, uh, oxymoronically named Cultural Revolution, you know, we, we, we ended up where there wasn't really much in the way of musical expression apart from Communist Party songs and traditional folk songs, etc. So in this last sort of 15 to 20 years, the growth of the Chinese music business has essentially been the growth of a new business and it's massively accelerated in, in, in the digital era. So when we're seeing the growth numbers that we see for the likes of Tencent and NetEase, you know, and, and NetEase just had a, a stake bought in it, which values it hugely. So we can see there's a lot of valuation in the market as well as consumer behavior. This is a music market that's been invented from scratch in the digital era. And what's happening? Social is at the center of it. You know, you look at the likes of, you know, Kugo and Kuo and We Sing, and you know, these are apps where, yes, they're music apps, but they're also social expression apps. They're places where you know the the, the money is generated predominantly from, say, live streaming or virtual gifts, etc. And um, and I think if we were starting now, if, if the Western music market was starting now from scratch, there's no way social wouldn't be at the heart of it. Um, we started from a different place, so we're playing catch up, and it's you know those old habits die hard. Um, record labels, for example, don't like the idea of having an artist song being full of people with lots of negative comments and thumbs down, etc. So you know there tends to be resistance to trying to build that stuff into the the standard licensed streaming services. So I think it's quite revealing 
But when you look at um, SoundCloud and YouTube, which are you know two of the biggest global services that don't have the same sort of licensing structure as the main audio streaming services, they operate under um, fair use, and the, so that means that they that they essentially, whereas the main streaming services, they get the licenses and then they get given the music to go and put on the services. Those YouTube and SoundCloud essentially get licenses which are uh, more liberal um, and are essentially they post-license what they, their users have already uploaded. On those services, you get really quite good social functionality. You get comments and likes and, you know, and discussions and, you know, you get people doing mashups and, you know, and remakes, etc. So it can be done. But there is a lot of resistance and hurdles for it to happen in those big mainstream services as they stand at the moment in the West. So I want to flip this on its head. Um, but before I do, I want to uh, mention that another shift that we've talked about is uses will remain faster than systems. On the one hand, you're talking, Mark, about the a different cultural orientation for where music could go to create uh, the kind of um, uh, services that Trister was asking about, more social-based music services that haven't worked here. Part of it, I think, is that the, the rights management systems um, and licensing systems, or maybe even belief mm. systems and values, are not really prepared. There's these new uses that keep arising and so forth. But to flip it on its head, you know, here we are talking about, oh, these systems could be more social, which would be more engaging if we could figure out the right way to create the the, the value exchange around the, the music component of it is that music's also competing with everything. And so I feel like when I was a, a kid or, or 20 something teens to 20 something music had a special place in society. It had a special place in your, your youth years, your coming of age where you would go and do music. Music was something you did. You listened on the radio, you listened to a jukebox, you went crate digging, um, you made a mixtape for a friend, you played in a band together. Yeah. And all, all, yeah all those things were like that was music but now with video games and social media and tv and film streaming and all that stuff where music is no longer it doesn't have its own special sacred <laughs> youthful category that it once once had but i'm curious if you have thoughts on what's going on broader in society around this idea that music oh, is competing with everything 100 yes, um it, it used to be that music was the central cultural reference point so you know if we heavily simplify things if we say that the teenager was invented in the 1950s you know that's when the teenager became a segment which was marketed out where content was created for we saw the rise of rock and roll and throughout the 50s 60s 70s 80s even into the 90s music played such a central role um that not only could you, you could tell what people what music people liked by often by what hairstyle they had, what clothes they were wearing, and music was very tribal, and it was the main way that youth identified themselves. Also, because most artists, when they write the first album, it tends to be the greatest hits of their adolescence. It means that they speak in the language of the teenagers listening to the music as well. So, you know, all those teenagers lying in the bedrooms listening to the music saying, this song's talking to me, you know, I'm going through this. You know, it spoke, spoke their language. It could channel all those, that adolescent angst. And it used to feel that, you know, you needed is music that could only do that. But we've seen with the rise of social media stars and, and uh, video gamers, you know, on, on Twitch, etc. 
all of whom are um, having huge, huge traction with youth. I mean, if you look at, you know, just to take a, a Fortnite gamer at the moment, you take someone like Laserbeam or Ninja, you know, these are people who are getting 10, 15 million subscribers on, on YouTube with kids, you know, preteens and teens who, who just watch them every day as their, you know, they're their personalities. They're the people who they resonate with. You know, you see PewDiePie has now gone over 100 million subscribers. Um, and he's done a lot of really silly, stupid stuff, you know, and some of this stuff is, you know, is, is, a, is more serious than that. Um, YouTube has demonetized him at times, and yet he's been grown faster than ever before. And what that reflects is he's a punk, right? And, and music doesn't have that, that punk attitude anymore because music is so mainstream that your mum and dad is just as likely to be, you know, to like the artist that you like. So you can't hold them on as being your own. Yet mum and dad watch, you know, PewDiePie and say, what on earth is this rubbish? That's exactly what the mum and dad would do listening to watching Elvis on the TV, shaking his hips, watching the Sex Pistols get interviewed uh, by Grundy, any of those sort of things. It's that, that rebellion aspect has sort of gone from music. And yet, ironically and paradoxically at the same time, you've ended up with, music having to take a side role, if you like, to many of these other things. Music is still really important for identity. It's still, you know, you know, kids still listen to lots and lots of music, but it's just one thing among many others that they identify themselves with. And the last piece of the equation, which is the technology part of this, the media consumption part of this, is that we have, we're living in the attention economy. You know, we, we, we essentially, we, as digital consumers, we, we spend a number of currencies. We spend our money on subscriptions. We spend our data um, to, to use a lot of free services that enables the advertisers to, to pay the money that they pay to support those free services. And we spend our attention. And as recently as maybe two or three years ago, there was still a lot of uh, white space left to be occupied in the attention economy. But now we have filled our dead time. Reed Hastings at Netflix used to say sleep was his biggest enemy. You know, he, he literally he was running out of hours in the day to persuade people to watch stuff. And he managed to go and do how many of us have sat there watching one episode too many on Netflix in bed. He's managed to actually make us eat into our sleep. So I think that and the thing is, is that there are many, many other things that rather than just music, which is competing for time. So if all of that spare time is gone, then that means anything that takes new time, anything that grows, whether it's a game, whether it's a TV show, whatever it is, is taking away from somewhere else. So the music industry has a bit of an inward obsession about share of ear. How much of radio time is going to streaming? How much of streaming time is going to podcasts? Really, what we should be thinking about is not how much of it that has been competed, it's how much of audio time is being taken elsewhere in the attention economy. Wow, I can just hear minds blown across podcast <laughs> landmark. This has been amazing to have you on the on the podcast and it makes me just that much more excited excited to have you keynoting at the music tectonics conference um you know we talked about maybe five or six of the seismic shifts that uh that we we've uh, identified i've got so many more i wish i could keep talking i've got you know maybe you should uh, put these on trading cards you know, i know how you love trading hey, cards dimitri you know dimitri is awesome. a yeah 
All right. Well, let's, let's do it. Let's do it. We're going to make trading cards. We're going to hand them out to everybody at Music Tectonics in LA. Um, and Mark's going to be there. You're the opening keynote. So excited that you're going to be there. And, and you uh, may have the golden magic um, yes, music Yes, we can make the Mark card. Mulligan trading card. Make it golden. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just looking forward to the secondary market that's going to evolve in, uh, in, in trading card swaps. <laughs> it's going to get Don't worry. I'll, I'll keep a little backstock so you I can take that. That will create market deflation. <laughs> <laughs> oh, these economists. What am I going to do? <laughs> Mark, it's great having you on the podcast. Looking forward to seeing you in LA. Thanks, Thanks for joining you. us on the show. And thank you for joining us on Music Tectonics. Please hit subscribe on your favorite podcasting service. But if you really want to know what's going on with Music Tectonics and the conference, go to musictectonics.com, sign up for our newsletter, and you'll get a $50 discount on the badge for Music Tectonics, the conference, which takes place October 28th and 29th in Los Angeles. And also, if you want to learn more about Mark Mulligan, go to mediaresearch.com. That's M-I-D-I-A research.com. He's got an amazing newsletter, one that you should definitely read and follow his um his reports and research and so forth and and come out to music tectonics where you'll get to to see him speak and hopefully meet him as well looking forward to seeing there thanks for joining us listening to Music Tectonics.